according to his promise, we are looking for new heavens and a new earth in which righteousness dwells. Therefore, beloved, since you look for these things, be diligent to be found by him in peace, spotless and blameless, and grow in the grace and knowledge of our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ. We are here for the purpose of growth. Turn to Luke chapter 2. Luke chapter 2. Got a lot of things going on this morning. We've got plumbers next door doing a bunch of stuff, and we may have some people walking through here, and hopefully there won't be a distraction for us. We also don't seem to have a network this morning, which means this MP3 won't be posted quite immediately, as it typically does at the conclusion of Bible class. But that's all right, too. We are going to conclude the uh, sections 15, 16, and 17 on uh, the childhood of Jesus. The 12-year-old Jesus visits the temple and the summary of Jesus' growth to adulthood in verses 51 to 52 that wraps up the chapter of uh, Luke chapter 2. We'll then be ready to move on to the next portion in the harmony of the Gospels, moving on to examine the baptism of Jesus Christ at the River Jordan and the uh, items that surround that, the beginning of his public ministry. I, uh, I believe this is lesson number 40, if I'm not mistaken, and uh, appreciate the way that we've been able to lay groundwork in these first 40 lessons up to the baptism of Christ that is really going to help us as we examine his baptism and his ministry and uh, all the way through to the crucifixion. So I think we've laid some excellent groundwork and we're on solid footing to be able to proceed through this study. Before we begin, let's take time for silent prayer and ask the Father to sanctify our time and bless our study. Shall we pray? Heavenly Father, we do thank you for the truth of your word, and we thank you for your faithfulness in our lives. We look forward to the feast you've prepared for us here this morning, and we ask for your blessing upon it. In Jesus Christ's name we pray. Amen. I accidentally walked up here with a cell phone in my pocket, so I'll make sure it's turned off. All right. It's on vibrate, so if somebody calls, I'll be the only one to know. Luke chapter 2. We have seen so far... There are actually a total of five points of study that we are making in this portion of chapter 2. And you have all the notes. You have all the study because in that packet we handed out two weeks ago, the final page of which was a two-sided sheet of paper that included all five points of study uh, in this uh, in this particular section. We are presently in the midst of main point four, detailing the unusual event on this occasion was not the Passover itself, but was actually the uh, after the Passover when Joseph and Mary and family were headed back to Nazareth and Jesus remained behind. And so after Passover, after the week of unleavened bread, uh, as Joseph and his family were returning back to Nazareth, they realized that the Lord was missing. They went back and they found him in the temple. And so we've spent now a couple of weeks looking at this. Um, making some uh, comments, which you see uh, in the subpoints under point four, uh, that Joseph and Mary returned to Nazareth in a caravan of relatives and acquaintances. The boy, Jesus, remained. He is called a pice at this point. He is not a little boy, but neither is he a man. This is his final Passover that he will uh, be here and observing the the uh, rituals under the authority of his father. Once he does turn 13, he will be participating in the rituals and the uh, celebration of Passover in his own capacity as a man. He remained in the temple, and what he was doing was quite interesting. There are four activities that describe what he was doing. He was sitting, listening, understanding, and ask and giving answers. Sitting in the midst of the teachers. Uh, there is no mention of any other students. There is the mention of one student and multiple teachers in this passage. He's not in the midst of a class and standing, at, say, at the head of his class. Uh, he is the class uh, in some respects. He is the student. And uh, there are multiple teachers in this text and only one student in this text. He was listening and asking them questions. And these weren't just inquisitive questions. These were not just questions for information, which you might expect under uh, such vocabulary as, as erotao or aiteo. This is ep erotao, where we have added the, the prefix epi in front of erotao. These are the kind of questions that we would expect in a courtroom, uh, what we would refer to as cross-examination. 
These are rebuttal questions. These are follow-up questions. These are, follow these are questions with content. Not disrespectful, not defiant, but very clearly they are questions with content. Questions that are bringing in additional items for understanding. Likewise, he possessed an understanding, and that was reflected in the answers he was giving them. The, he, con, he possessed an understanding, and that understanding was reflected in the answers that he was giving them. And this is what amazed the teachers. The temple teachers were amazed. This sense of amazement uh, begins here, but will continue. The amazement that will continue through the baptism. The amazement that will continue when he returns to Nazareth. Amazement that will continue throughout his ministry. Amazement that will actually continue after his ministry. Because we, we find it in the uh, Acts of the Apostles, after Christ has ascended, that the, the still the, the Pharisees and Sadducees are stunned that apostles like John, John and Peter, these ignorant fishermen, could have such insight, such wisdom and understanding of the Scriptures. I appreciated the translation by Kenneth Wiest, where he says, And all who were listening to him were astounded to the point of a mental imbalance at his grasp and comprehension and his ability to give them answers which exhibited a discriminating private judgment. That is a remarkable translation. His ability to give them answers which exhibited a discriminating private judgment. He wasn't, see, some students can score well on tests by simply memorizing and mimicking. They can memorize what the teacher wants to hear. They can mimic it. They can give the right answers, so to speak. But all they're doing is simply parroting or mimicking what it is that they've learned is going to score real well on a test. Christ is giving them answers here that demonstrates that he understands the issues thoroughly. He's brought in other related scriptures, other areas of doctrine, and he has synthesized them together into an amazing, a discriminating private judgment. To a large extent, his capacity here, and this really in a lot of ways goes to other areas I won't get into today, but Concepts of critical thinking, concepts where we would like to see our students develop these kind of skills, where perhaps they're not as developed in a, in, in a public school setting, for example. But it is quite likely that Jesus Christ at the age of 12 has a better capacity for critical thinking than many of these Pharisees and Sadducees. In other words, these scholars and these scribes, these that have been trained up in their school, and they're so caught up in their schools, you know, holding to the school of Hillel and fighting against the school of Shammai or vice versa, they are so locked into their theology that that they no longer think critically. They no longer can think through the issues and, and examine objectively the scriptures. And uh, that itself becomes amazing. And why I think Bible churches have a remarkable advantage when we do our basic series and other things, that we can examine the Scriptures critically, and we're open to learning. We're open to being persuaded and changing our minds if, we, if it can be demonstrated that our view of the Scriptures is incorrect. See, if I understand something wrong, and I can be demonstrated in the Scriptures that I need to change my view or have a clearer understanding, then I'm open to that. Whereas uh, I think a lot of theologies and a lot of denominations uh, are not. That is closed within their thinking, closed within their theological system. And so some of this I think we find here reflected in the ministry of Christ. On our main point C then on the flip side of that sheet of paper, Joseph and Mary were ignorant of Jesus' activities. And we focused on these items here. And we ran out of time with the fourth sub-point. That's really what I want to get into. We don't have a lot of actual outline to cover today, but there are some concepts that come out of this outline that I'm hoping we can uh, really spend the bulk of our time with here this morning and get this wrapped up and move on to new ground uh, next week. They were unaware of his absence. That is, they did not gnosko. The verb there, gnosko, means to have factual knowledge, and they just didn't know. Didn't know where he was. Didn't, they were not aware of his absence. They supposed that he was in the caravan, and that's namizo, to think or to suppose. It's really uh, uh, to guess. It's to have an idea. You know, I think, but I don't really know. It's not truly a thinking word as gnosko is or uh, some other words where I've really put some active thought into it. It's just kind of a supposition. Well, I think so. Do I really know? See? Like the plumber this morning asking, well, which way does your sewer line go? Well, <laughs> I think it goes this way, but I haven't actually gotten a shovel out and dug it up the whole front yard to prove it, but I think it goes this way. And John says, well, the city diagram says it goes that way. So, well, all right. 
So there's some people who think that. <laughs> but until you get people out there with shovels and actually dig this way and that way, you're not going to know one way or the other which way is it going to go. Okay? So they supposed he was in the caravan. This, uh, and, I, and I stressed it a little bit last week, and I'll only touch on it shortly here this morning. This is kind of what people view faith as. I'm talking about unbelievers and skeptics. This is how they classify faith. They say, well, I believe in Jesus Christ. I place my faith in Jesus Christ. And in their way of looking at it, I'm simply supposing. I'm thinking that I'm saved. I'm thinking that Christ paid for my sins. I'm thinking that I'm going to go to heaven when I die. But I don't really know. See, I can't really know until I get there. And they have a misguided understanding of what faith truly is. Because faith is not namizo. Faith is pistuo. Faith is to place your confidence or trust in an object. And it's not a blind faith. It's not just a wishful, well, I hope so. Or, well, I think so. All right? And when we give the gospel, I really appreciated. We had a a missionary here from Amazing Grace Missions. And um, he had a real interesting approach when he said, you know, how sure are you of your salvation? Are you 50% sure? 80% sure? 90% sure? And he said, even 99% sure isn't sure enough. You should be 100% sure because our faith is grounded in the certainty of the Scriptures. See. So they supposed he was in the caravan. They were astonished to see him in the middle of the temple teachers. Their astonishment, um, a little bit there with ekplaso, really slapped in the face, where you're stunned. You know, where it has just hit you in the face and you just, for a moment, can't believe what you're seeing. All right? And imagine for three days now, they've been wondering, well, where is he? Where is he? Where is he? You know, any parent would be naturally concerned over a son that they lost for three days. Any parent would. All right? But now, if you know for a fact that that son is the Savior of the world, and you've been entrusted to raise him up, (laughs) you've been entrusted to teach him and prepare him for his adult ministry where he can go to the cross and die so we can have eternal life, and you're his parents and you've lost him, (laughs) can you imagine what kind of panic or what kind of thoughts joseph and mary have here i mean they've been entrusted to raise the humanity of jesus christ so like i say any parent's going to be worried over a son that they've lost track of but when when that son is the savior of the world and you're looking all around you don't know where he is that's that's a reason to be concerned see because if he doesn't grow up and go to the cross we're in a lot of trouble (laughs) right i mean there's some things you lose that you say oh well i'll go get another one But then there's other things you lose that you say, wait a minute, this isn't an option. I've got to find this. I've got to get this back. Okay? And losing a son when he's the savior of the world, you you understand the urgency here. And so they come into Jerusalem. They're three days, haven't seen him, and they come in and they find him. And he's here, not in a classroom, but he's in the faculty lounge, being grilled by the, by the instructors. See? And it is a slap in the face. It's a shocker. They're, they're stunned. They're amazed. And uh, there's some work to be done on Ecclesia, but we won't pursue that here this morning. I want to focus in on that fourth point of study. They did not understand. They did not understand. This whole passage is, is just brimming with a lot of vivid terms. From not knowing, to thinking, to being astonished, to not understanding. And the, specifically, the not, the statements of not understanding include two different vocabulary terms, one in verse 49, one in verse 50. And all of the rest of their perplexity came uh, by looking around and not knowing what's going on. But then they actually have a conversation in verse 48. And based upon his response, they still don't understand. And so, really, verses 49 and 50 are unique because they follow a conversation. All the rest of their confusion preceded that conversation. They're just looking around trying to find their son, don't know what's going on. But they find him, they have a conversation in verse 48, and even with the answer he supplies them, they still do not understand. So, we see it here. When they saw, I'm reading from verse 48. When they saw him, they were astonished, and his mother said to him, Interesting, Joseph remained silent, Mary speaks up. All right? Joseph remained silent, Mary speaks up. And I have read probably 199 different explanations, <laughs> and every single one of them is strictly guesswork, because there's no verse in here that says why Joseph remained silent or why Mary spoke up. All right? 
He said to them, why is it that you were looking for me? Now here's one of his questions with content. His questions with insight. Why is it that you were looking for me? From his perspective, they had no reason to do so. From his perspective. Did you not know? Now this is like Paul when he uses that rhetorical question. Do you not know that we will judge the world? Do you not know that the saints will judge angels? See, do you not know that we almost stand before the judgment seat of Christ? When Paul uses it or anybody uses it, this is a rhetorical question that means you should know. See, did you not know that... <coughs> Excuse me. <coughs> Did you not know that I had to be in my father's house or in my father's business or in the things of my father? There's no noun there. All it is is in my father with a sphere, a sphere of operation. All right. I must be in my father's house, in my father's business, in my father's will. See, accomplishing my father's desire. And he's not speaking about Joseph here, obviously, because Joseph is the one he's asking. Did you not know? See, I must be about my father's business. I must be involved in the things of my father. Powerful statement there in verse 49. But then the response in verse 50 was one of not understanding. They did not understand the statement which he had made to them. All right. They, plural, father and mother, Joseph and Mary, did not understand. Now we had his question, did you not know? where he used oida, and then we have the statement by the Holy Spirit here in verse 50 that they did not understand suniemi. All right, you have the vocabulary there in your notes. To know or to understand. To know, fascinatingly enough, is a pluperfect. Don't see too many pluperfects in the Scripture. All right, but you have it in the pluperfect here. As a past uh, rendering of, of oida, which typically takes the perfect anyway. So we have a pluperfect. Were you not knowing? Were you not knowing? That is, during the time of the Passover and the Feast of the Unleavened Bread, during the time of your return back to Nazareth, were you not knowing? See, did you not know then, with the result that you still don't know now? Okay? Did you not know I must be about my father's business? But they did not understand. Aorist active indicative of Sunni Amy, number 49.20. Rather related to his um, understanding when we looked at Sunesis, when he had understanding back under point four, that he had an understanding when he was giving the answers there. Here is a verb, Sunni Amy, for understanding. Being able to put things together. The soon prefix means together. And if you can't put two and two together, then you don't have the understanding that two and two equals four. All right? You may have a ton of knowledge, but you've got to put, in many cases, you've got to put knowledge together in order to fully have understanding. Even wisdom has to be put together. Scripture says, obtain wisdom, but with your wisdom, gain understanding. See, uh, just to have, you know, a thousand facts of wisdom all you know, unrelated and uncorrelated, just kind of sitting there floating around in a, in a, in a, in your rattling around in your mind somewhere, is not as effective as being able to correlate those principles of wisdom and put it together into a into an understanding, such as the Lord was able to do uh, here, where we've seen the um, teachers all just amazed at his understanding and his answers in verse 70 47. So Joseph and Mary do not have this understanding. They haven't put things together in the same way that Jesus Christ has put things together. So we need we need to ask now, does this mean that they're stupid? Does this mean that they're wrong? Does this mean that Jesus Christ is 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 maybe he's stupid? Maybe he's wrong. See, we want to be very cautious that we don't just automatically jump because there's a difference of understanding between parties. All right. We, we accept the fact that Mary and Joseph are believers. We accept the fact that Jesus Christ is a believer. In fact, I think all the evidence is that Joseph is a very mature believer. In an extraordinary way, every glimpse we've had of Joseph has left me anyway impressed at his faith, at his capacity and, and all the rest. 
but he doesn't have the same understanding that his son has. All right. So how do we deal with that? We're going to deal with that here today. Point D here in the outline, Jesus comprehended the necessity of his obedient service to God the Father. Jesus comprehended the necessity. He says, I must be about my father's business. The particle day, D-E-I, speaks of a binding, an obligation, see. We've often discussed the difference between the want-tos and the have-tos. And there's a lot of things maybe that, are, that fall into the want-to category. But this is a have-to for Jesus Christ. He has no option. He has to be about his father's business, see. And that includes everything up through, including the cross, includes the cross, includes the death, burial, and resurrection, includes the ascension and session. There's a whole lot with respect to what Christ has to do in obedience to God the Father's plan. All right? But one thing we can recognize, and, and this is apart from Christ's statement, because we can, <laughs> and we have the advantage of hindsight, all right? And so we, we have an advantage over Mary, Joseph, and Jesus right here in this verse. Okay? As we're going through the text, Joseph, Mary, and Jesus are stuck in time. Right where they're at. Okay? We have the advantage of 2,000 years of hindsight. We can, we can read the rest of the Gospel of Luke, for example. We can read the remainder of the Gospel narrative. And we realize that in the perfect time of God the Father, Jesus Christ is not going to go to the cross for a minimum of 20, probably 25 more years. Alright? We know that the cross is still a generation away. 20 to 25 years away. Alright? We know that. Joseph, Mary, and Jesus don't. All right? They don't know what the timetable is for the work of redemption, what the timetable is for everything else the Father has in mind. See, the calling of disciples, the performing of miracles, the um, coming in humbly riding on a colt, for example. They don't know what the timetable is here. All right? Now, Jesus has a comprehension of his obligation, the necessity of his obedient service to God the Father. And he has a handle on the what, shall we say. But does he have the proper understanding of the when? Of the timing? Alright? So point one, Joseph and Mary did not have the same understanding. Joseph and Mary did not have the same understanding. See, he's surprised that they've come back looking for him. And this rhetorical question of, did you not know, not only does it assume that they should have known, but it could also indicate that he's surprised they didn't know, and maybe he has the improper perspective. Maybe he's wrong. On the timing of it. Joseph and Mary did not have the same understanding. We, that's very clear from verse 50. Now, the response in verse 51 becomes interesting because, which I put under point two, taking this into consideration, Jesus understood that the time was not yet appropriate for him to step out of his parents' jurisdiction. See, immediately, when he recognizes, when he recognizes that there's a disconnect, Joseph and Mary have one understanding. He has another understanding. Okay? In other words, there's not like-mindedness. There's not agreement. And then just a matter of, well, I'm right, you're wrong. You have to agree with me. Okay? But it's a matter that you're different. <laughs> Your viewpoint is different. Your understanding is different. Your faith is different from where he was. Okay? There was not like-mindedness. Taking this into consideration, Jesus understood that the time was not yet appropriate for him to step out of his parents' jurisdiction. And what does he do immediately in verse 51? He went down with them and came to Nazareth. And he continued in subjection to them. And his mother treasured all these things in her heart. All right, again, there's no reference to Joseph. How did he respond? What were his thoughts? We're not told. And we understand he dies here very shortly, and it may be that he doesn't live much longer beyond this. 
He doesn't live long enough to, to think these things through and, and work out what it was that, that, uh, why it was that his adopted son here thought that it was time to step out and enter into ministry. But Mary does. Mary's got many years to, to keep pondering and treasuring and chewing on it. See, the answer, if something's not clear, the answer is not to just throw up your hands and give up. The answer is just treasure it in your heart. Pastor Theme used to say, put it on the back burner. All right? It hasn't fully cooked yet. You're not ready to serve it yet. You're not ready to eat it yet. You're certainly not ready to digest it yet. So get it off the front burner. Put it to the back burner on the stove, so to speak, and let it simmer there for a little bit more. Let it, let it stew a little bit more. Let, you know, let it keep percolating and cooking and, and working on it, and someday the understanding may come. Okay? The answer isn't just throw it out and give up on it. So... Given the Lord's question in verse 49, his recognition of the lack of understanding in verse 50, and then his immediate activity in verse 51, he volitionally chose to return with them to continue under their parenting, to continue under their, um, under their uh, stewardship, under their responsibility, under their authority. And all the evidence suggests that... Obviously, he never disobeyed the father. Everything he did was perfect and, and right. But that that with Joseph about to die here shortly, a part of the Lord's training and preparation for ministry is he is going to be stepping into the headship of this home. He is the firstborn male son. He's going to have a widow mother who will need to be provided for. He's going to have younger siblings who will need to be provided for. Younger brothers that should be learning their carpentry trade from Joseph, but if Joseph's not around anymore, who's going to teach him carpentry? Jesus is. See, it's, it's amazing. Matthew calls him the carpenter's son, but Mark calls him the carpenter. So we know that he learned it from his father, and he himself had, you know, uh, he was beyond journeyman. He had his own carpentry practice. See? Plus he had younger sisters. So who's going to speak for them? Who's going to shepherd their souls? Who's going to uh, make the, the marriage arrangements for his sisters? It won't be Joseph anymore. Jesus Christ has to take that responsibility. See, I've, I've read some skeptics and some critics, and then there's this evil, godless Da Vinci Code thing out there. Okay, And people say, well, how come Jesus was never married? See, he was tempted in all things, even as we are, and yet without sin. Well, they say that's not entirely fair, is it? Because he was never married. He never faced marriage testing, for example. Okay? Now I stop and say, well, slow down here a minute. He was the head of this household here very quickly. Responsibility to a widowed mother. Responsibility with the younger brothers and the younger sisters. He was the head of that household. So... Putting his culture up against our culture, for example, he was the head of a household with the mother. There's the mother of the household and with siblings and all the other responsibilities. He had to earn a living and put food on the table and bring up these younger siblings, James and Jude and, and uh, Simeon and Joseph and, and the two sisters. We don't even know their names. All right. That's a tremendous responsibility. And sure, he didn't have, you know, marital relations or uh, the, the activity there, but that's coming. By the way, <laughs> he has a bride the father's prepared for him. All right. And so we have the issues here. And he submits to their jurisdiction. And then notice. In verse 52, Jesus kept increasing in wisdom and stature and in favor with God and men. Notice at this point, he was not as mature as he would be. He had growth yet to come to. The growth that's mentioned in, in verse 52 follows the decision he made in verse 51 to continue under his parents' authority. He was continuously growing in the sight of God and man. He had more to learn. He had more to grow. He wasn't ready yet to go find John the Baptist and get baptized at the River Jordan and start grabbing disciples. All right? Which is a good thing because probably the Apostle John isn't even born yet. <laughs> All right? If, as I say, we're still 20 plus years, just guess 20 years still pre-baptism. 20 years between here and when he approaches John the Baptist to the River Jordan. All right? 
And in all likelihood, the Apostle John was a teenager. The Apostle John was not 20 when he followed after Christ with his older brother James. All right. This is all just synchronizing chronologies and, and working out dates and understanding that John has to be alive still to write Revelation at 96 A.D. and die in about 100 A.D. and the things there. Okay? A lot of work gets done on uh, gospel chronology, and I do recommend Harold Honer and uh, his book, Chronological Aspects of the Life of Christ. I don't think there's anything that's surpassed it in its, uh, in its accuracy and in its scholarship. Jesus was continuously growing in the sight of God and man. It says he kept increasing in wisdom and stature. Wisdom and stature. See, he's got to grow spiritually, but he still has to grow physically as well. It's not going to be a 12-year-old boy that endures what Christ endures leading up to and including the cross. He's going to be an adult man. And in favor with God and man. All right, now that wraps up the outline. I want to spend our final half of this session. We're about the halfway point now. With some thoughts that you don't have in printed notes. Some thoughts on... This uh, understanding. And I put together a... Uh, I don't know why that decided to do that. All right. I put together some notes. And I titled them um, Volitional Understanding and Misunderstandings. And I didn't put them in a slide, so I just went ahead and left them in the, uh, in the software application. And... I can make it big enough, you might even be able to read it. Starting off here in Luke chapter 2, verses 49 to 51, which again, I'll increase the font size so you can read it. Because volitional understanding and misunderstanding becomes important. Um, recognizing, of course, that a misunderstanding... Or just a non-understanding. It's not necessarily sinful. It's not necessarily carnal. It doesn't mean that there's a right and a wrong. It just means that another believer in his faith has not yet come to the same uh, point of view that you have come to. See, a lot of this is going to come up in Corinthians in particular. Because we're going to talk about gray areas. We're going to talk about uh, measures of faith. We're going to talk about matters of conscience. Where a believer can have an understanding as a matter of conscience that's different from a believer in the row next to him who has a different understanding on a matter of conscience. All right? Whether it's eating meat sacrificed to idols or drinking or smoking or dancing or uh, going to movies, a lot of things that believers have had disagreements of understandings. So as I look at verses 49 through 51, these are the thoughts I put together here in this outline. I simply made a little note file here in the Logos software. I called it Volitional Understanding and Misunderstandings. First of all, Jesus Christ had an understanding with regard to his work assignment for the Father. He had an understanding with respect to his work assignment for God the Father. And in his understanding, he was to part from Joseph and Mary and remain in Jerusalem. That was his understanding. And his understanding was reflected in what he did. He stayed in Jerusalem. He parted from Joseph and Mary. He stayed in Jerusalem and he was learning from these teachers. That was his understanding. And he says to them, did you not know that I had to be in my father's house? He's communicating his understanding. Then in verse 50, Joseph and Mary did not have the same understanding. All right. We're not we're not. Reading into the text here, we're just reading what the text says. It says in verse 50, they didn't understand. They didn't understand his statement. They did not know from what he had asked them in verse 49. And yet we recognize from verse 51 that Jesus continued in subjection to them. Jesus continued in subjection to them. Well, now, if he had an understanding in verse 49 that he had to be about his father's business then why is he leaving the temple and going to follow Joseph and Mary and submitting to them in verse 51? See, if his understanding in verse 49 was that he had to 
leave them and be about God the Father's business, then why is he now following Joseph and Mary in verse 51? Is it because he's admitting he was wrong? Is it because he says, oh, my mistake, I had the wrong idea there? Possibly. Or, possibly he understands that he still is burdened to fulfill the Father's will, but he also understands that Joseph and Mary aren't ready for that yet. That they don't have a faith that would support him stepping out. In which case, he's dropping a big stumbling block on his own parents. Because he would be forcing them to do something they're not ready to do yet. That is, let him leave home. So Jesus continued in subjection to them. We do recognize in verse 52 that he had more growth to attain to. And other work assignments prior to his baptism. Other work assignments prior to his baptism, see. Because if the Father wanted him to go get baptized tomorrow, obviously he would have done that. Would have arranged for that, would have directed for that. John the Baptist would have been on hand. But see, John the Baptist himself is still out there in the wilderness of Judea getting his training for his ministry. He's not trained and prepared yet to step forward as a forerunner. There are other work assignments that have to happen. The other disciples have to have their work assignments. They're not ready yet. They're not ready to become followers of Christ because they're not ready yet to become followers of, of the baptizer because the baptizer's not ready yet for his ministry. And like I say, John wasn't even born yet. Peter is still fishing. Andrew is still fishing. They're forming up a, 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 a fishing group here with Zebedee. And we know from verse 52 that there's more growth to attain to. He kept increasing in wisdom and stature and in favor with God and men. See, he wasn't ready yet to enter into the ministry. He thought he was. Every indication I have here, he was convicted to be about his father's business. He, had, he was convicted of the necessity. This is what he had to do. He had a, a work assignment to do for God the Father. But it was not yet the time. It was not yet the time. See, so does this mean he was sinning? No. Does this mean he was rebelling? No. It meant that he had a zeal to serve, to fulfill his spiritual life, but he was wrong in the timing. See, <laughs> here's a shocker. An adolescent male is impatient with respect to the timing of something that he wants to see happen. Oh, like that's something unique in the history of mankind. All right. An adolescent male is impatient. An adolescent male is ahead of where he needs to be. He needs to slow down and re-examine some things here on the timing. See, you have to do the right thing in the right way at the right time for the right reasons. All right. It's not the right time for him to leave Joseph and Mary. He thinks it is, but it's not. So does that mean he's sinning? No. It means he's got more to learn. Okay? There's a difference between being factually incorrect and being in rebellion against God the Father. There are scads of believers out here that are factually incorrect in a whole lot of things. But it doesn't mean that they're in rebellion against God the Father. Necessarily. All right? I truly believe, for example, that that the, uh, the, the Pentecostal movement and, and churches and believers that are caught up in charismatic Christianity and all these other things, uh, that they're, they're, they're doctrinally, factually incorrect. Because the charismatic gifts are no longer given by God the Holy Spirit. Uh, charismatic uh, effects and, and symptoms and things can be uh, imitated and counterfeited by other spirits. All right. But does that mean that all of those believers are are in open rebellion against God? See, the ones that are truly saved, I'm, I'm referring to now, or are they simply incorrect in their doctrine? I, I think the simple decision to not argue about it, to not press his case, the simple decision to say, you know. 
I'll give my parents the benefit of the doubt. <laughs> I'll continue in subjection to them until I get clearer evidence of God's will. See, under divine guidance, if, if, if you have a, a, a conviction of the will of God and everybody else doesn't have that same conviction, <laughs> you know, it might be a good idea to go ahead and slow down and look at it some more. See, particularly when he's blessed you in, the, in a marriage, for example, with a spouse. Your heirs together are the grace of life, that your prayers may not be hindered. So if you've got a spouse be, and, and, and your wife or your husband doesn't have the same, uh, the same conviction you do, slow down, look at it some more. See what the Father's leading you to do. Because he's not the author of confusion. If you've got one understanding, your spouse has another understanding, God's not the author of confusion. If you've gone to him in prayer and asked for a fish, he's not going to give you a snake. So slow down. Look at it some more. As the Lord is doing here. And even if you're right, even if you're right, it may be that you still need to slow down so that the other party can see it the same way you do. So that the other party can come along and have the same wisdom that you're blessed with. All right? Not everybody can be as genius as you, so, you know, slow down and let, let the other guy catch up to what you've figured out a long time ago. And don't sit there like a big know-it-all and say, well, come on, dummy, I figured that out, you know. Like somebody that reads a mystery novel and had it figured out 300 pages before the end and laughs at you because he hadn't figured it out until, you know, the last page. All right. I think there's some principles here we have to glean and some other passages, one of which that struck me quite um, literally here was Philemon. So turn over to Philemon or just look on the screen. Philemon verse 14. Philemon, you can aim for Hebrews and back up a book. All right. And Paul is sending Onesimus, the runaway slave, back to his slave owner, Philemon. He would love to keep him there in Rome because he has a lot of work to do and Philemon and Onesimus would be a useful helper. And yet, he can't do that without Philemon's consent. Because Onesimus is a runaway slave. Onesimus belongs to Philemon. Onesimus has to return to Corinth. Alright? Or, uh, not Corinth, Colossae. Alright? And so it's interesting, he says, uh, I, I appeal to you, there's an order, but he appeals, he comes alongside with Parakalo to exhort, encourage, appeal. I appeal to you for my child Onesimus, whom I have begotten in my imprisonment. He led him to Christ. Onesimus ran away from Philemon, runs to Rome where he can hide as a runaway slave, runs into the Apostle Paul, and Paul leads him to Christ. All right? And... God the Father's amazing sovereignty as these things work out. Because Paul had some years back led Philemon to Christ. And now here's this runaway slave and he's going to lead him to Christ. Who formerly was useless to you, but now is useful both to you and to me. The name Onesimus means useful and this is a play on his name. And the fact that he was useless because he was a runaway slave, but now he's useful. Because now he's a believer. But I have sent him back to you in person. Uh, that is, sending my very heart whom I wish to keep with me, so that on your behalf he might minister to me in my imprisonment for the gospel. So, you know, I would love to keep Onesimus here. I'd love to keep him here. He's useful. He can do a whole lot. In fact, he can minister in your place. You know, instead of sending a financial offering to the mission field, you send your slave <laughs> to the mission field. And here's my slave, and you know, I haven't been able to support you financially very much, Paul, I understand, but here's my slave. You know, work him here in the mission field. He can do some good work. Paul says, whom I wish to keep with me so that on your behalf he might minister to me in, in my imprisonment for the gospel. But without your consent, I do not want to do anything so that your goodness would not be in effect by compulsion, but of your own free will. Paul says, I'm sending him back. And if you want him to return, you're going to make that call. It'll be of your free will, not because I made you do it. Paul says, you know, I'm an apostle. I have confidence. I can order you to do that which is proper. He says, but I'm not going to do it. And I view the, the conflict between Joseph and Mary and Jesus in a similar light. He could insist that now is the time to step out. Now is the time I'm leaving home. I'm leaving home, Mom. All right? Leaving home, Dad. Mom and Dad may not like it. 
But he puts his foot down and says, I'm doing it. I'm on my own. I must be about my father's business. It's time to redeem the world and save mankind and go to the cross and whatever else he's got to do. Okay? And quite likely, at the age of 12, he did not yet know fully what he was going to do on Calvary. All right? He may have had some ideas. You know, Isaiah 53 looked pretty dark. Psalm 22 looked pretty grim. I'm sure that even at the age of 12, Jesus Christ understood that he was laying down his life and it was not going to be pleasant. But see, had he done so, it would have been without Joseph and Mary's consent. Certainly without their understanding. Certainly without their blessing. And, and clearly without a work of faith on their part. Goodness must be of free will and not by compulsion. Goodness must be of free will and not by compulsion. See, so if Christ would have stepped out here and said, go back to Nazareth, see you later, have a nice life, thanks for raising me, uh, don't need you anymore, you know. Had he done that, then Joseph and Mary would have grudgingly, under compulsion, unwillingly, who knows? They wouldn't have been bearing fruit on the basis of faith. That's, that much is obvious. Any work has to be on the basis of faith. These other scriptures are good ones. I'll just give them to you. You can look them up. First Chronicles 28, 9. You know, God searches the heart and the mind. You've got to serve volitionally. You've got to seek Him with all your heart. All service has to be volitional. First Chronicles 29, 5. You've got to do so volitionally. Also, verse 9. The people rejoiced because they had offered so willingly. The offering they made to the Lord was willing. It was volitional. They gave so much to the temple. They, Solomon had to stop and say, well, well, stop giving. We've got too much. All right. They gave willingly. Likewise, verse 14 of 1 Chronicles 29. Solomon says, who am I and who are my people that we should be able to offer as generously as this? For all things come from you and from your hand we have given to you. You know, Solomon says, man, this is, who am I? Why should I even be blessed financially in order to give to such a thing? Okay. Grace giving should be a privilege. Not that, oh, I've got to give my 10%. But man, why does the Father bless me so much that I can give? And not just why does he bless me so much that I can give of my excess. Why does he give me anything so that I can give anything? And then I can live on the excess because I've given him my first fruits. Nehemiah 11.2 The people, all the people, blessed all the men who had volunteered to live in Jerusalem when Ezra and Nehemiah led them back. And this was free will. These were believers that volunteered that said, we want to live in Jerusalem. We want to help build the walls. We want to help build the city. I know that I got a land grant somewhere up in the tribe of Naphtali, but I want to volunteer to live in Jerusalem to build this temple, to build these walls, to build the inheritance for the Lord. These were volunteers who were serving willingly at the sake of their own personal land grant, their own personal tribal expense, and all the rest. Isaiah 6, 8, Here I am, Lord, send me. Say, the Lord said, Who will go? got to be volitional. It's got to be a believer who wants to. And Isaiah said, here I am, send me. 1 Corinthians 9.17 If I do this voluntarily, I have a reward. But if against my will, I have a stewardship. See, are you, are you doing it because you have to? Just fulfilling a stewardship? Got to do it. Or because you want to. If it's voluntarily and you want to and you love the Lord and you're doing it on the basis of you want to, it's rewardable. If you're doing it because you have to and you're just obeying a stewardship, all right, that's not rewardable. Second Corinthians 8.12 The readiness is present. If the readiness is present, it is acceptable according to what a person has, not according to what he does not have. You know, if you are, if the readiness is there, the willingness is there, your mental attitude is right, it's acceptable. Based on what you have. The widow had two mites, she gave it. The rich man had a million dollars, See, it's not a matter of what you have and what you don't have. It's the willingness, the readiness, the mental attitude. You know, God doesn't expect you to give, uh, you know, we're, we're going to talk about some things coming up here at the end of this year and on into the new year. And what are we going to do to expand this building? Are we going to sell the property and build a new church? Are we going to move out of the parsonage maybe and turn that, that into a Sunday school building? Well, then we're going to need to buy a new house for the pastor. What, what's going to happen there? See, well, you know. We're going to put some thoughts together. We're going to pray over it. We may establish a fund and say, hey, if you want to give, give, and we'll see what we can do. You know, see if we buy a new parsonage or 
buy a tent, you know, <laughs> pitch something on the south lawn and whatever. Okay? The Lord's going to provide for that. And it's not according to what you don't have. It's according to what you have. And then what do you want to do? We already mentioned uh, Philemon 14, 1 Peter 5, 2, the responsibility for shepherds. Shepherd the flock of God among you, exercising oversight, not under compulsion, but voluntarily according to the will of God. If it's under compulsion, if you feel like you have to, it doesn't bear fruit, and it's not according to the will of God. Voluntarily, according to the will of God. So important in any area of spiritual life. And so, Jesus continues in subjection to them. Because at this point, they don't have the understanding that he's, he's ready to step out. And if he was to just insist on it and step out anyway without their consent, then what kind of fruit would they be bearing? None. And he would be, as I mentioned, laying a, uh, laying a stumbling block out there. Another passage that came to my mind was uh, Romans chapter 14, verses 21 and 20, uh, through 23. Faith must be exercised as a volitional expression of obedience to the Word of God. Any doubts nullify the exercise of faith. Faith must be exercised as a volitional expression of obedience to the Word of God. Any doubts nullify the exercise of faith. And Jesus, if he would have stepped out there, Joseph and Mary would have had some doubting. And quite frankly, once he found out that they were of a different mind, Jesus may have had some doubts. Once he found out that, didn't you know I must be about my father's business? Now the Lord has an opportunity to slow down and say, whoa, wait a minute. Maybe I need to listen to their, to their understanding. There might be room for doubt there now. Since his parents have a different understanding than what he had, maybe he would have a, a reason for doubting. See. It is good not to eat meat or to drink wine or to leave home or to enter into a ministry or to do anything by which your brother stumbles. The faith which you have, have as your own conviction before God. Happy is he who does not condemn himself in what he approves. In other words, if you are convinced, if the word of God, if you, are, if you know what you have believed and you're going to step forward on faith, applying doctrine, and you know you're doing it, then do it in the will of God. But he who doubts is condemned if he eats or whatever the issue is, because his eating is not from faith, whatever is not from faith is sin. It kind of goes back to that thinking word we saw. Well, I think this is what I should be doing. I think God wants me to do such and such. Well, do you have any doubt about that? Is it just a wishful thinking at this point? Are you guessing? Do you think or do you know? Because if all you do is you think and you're guessing and you, you want, well, yeah, maybe, and there's any kind of doubt, if there's doubt, it's not faith and it's sin. Because you're told to walk by faith. Very important principle here in Romans 14. A couple of illustrations on this. One of which is in 1 Samuel 23. We dealt with this in the life of David's study. David had an understanding of the will of God. Now David's on the run. Saul wants to kill him. He's out there running away. He's gathered some men to him at this point. And they told David, saying, Behold, the Philistines are fighting against Keilah and are plundering the threshing floors. So David inquired of the Lord, saying, Shall I go and attack these Philistines? And the Lord said to David, Go, attack the Philistines and deliver Keilah. All right. David had a question. He made it a matter of prayer. He got the answer from the Lord. He now has an understanding on the basis of faith. He says, I'm going to go attack the Philistines and I'm going to deliver Keilah. Notice how he asked a question, the Lord answered the question and went beyond the answer to the question. David said, should I attack the Philistines? The Lord said, attack the Philistines and deliver Keilah. All right? So the Lord's answer was more complete than David's question. And David has a full understanding. This is the will of God. I'm going to go attack the Philistines. I'm going to deliver Keilah. This is what God wants me to do. And David had that understanding. You don't get much more clearer than that than being a prophet of the Lord and having the Lord speak to you. Okay? But David's men, the actual soldiers that are going to serve under him and are going to go do this war, that are going to serve him, and, and, and well, they don't have the same understanding. In verse 3, David's men said to him, Behold, you sure about this, David? 
We are afraid here in Judah. How much more then if we go to Keilah against the ranks of the Philistines? All right. So David has an understanding. His men don't have that same understanding. So what does David do? Puts his foot down. Slaps him upside the head. Says, quit being such ninnies. <laughs> says, come on, you big dummies. Fine then. You don't understand the will of God? I understand the will of God. I'm a prophet. Who do you think you are? Just shut up and listen. Obey. Let's go do this war. No. Uh-uh. David doesn't do any of that. David says, all right, let's have a prayer meeting. Let's go ahead and have a prayer meeting. Let's seek the will of God together in this. See, and David inquired of the Lord once more in verse 4. Now, why does he go back to prayer? He knew what God's will was. But see, his men hadn't seen it yet. His men hadn't seen it yet. So he takes his men with him. Together they have a prayer meeting. Together they seek the Lord's will. And David inquired of the Lord once more. And the Lord answered him and said, Arise, go down to Keilah, for I will give the Philistines into your hand. So David and his men went to Keilah. See, his men are fine with it now. They have the same understanding. He took the time to slow down and bring them up to speed. See, me like a husband and a wife. And the husband sees the something in the will of God and the wife just hasn't seen it yet. So what does the husband do? You know, get all mad, huff and puff and say, you rebellious woman, you're supposed to submit. Well, don't you know anything? This is God's will. We need to do this. Or does the husband treat his wife in an understanding manner as a weaker vessel? as heirs together the grace of life, that their prayers may not be hindered, does he come alongside and say, okay, you don't see this yet. Let's pray over it. Maybe I'm not looking at it right. Let's pray over it. Let's see this thing together, because by two or three witnesses, everything shall be confirmed. Let's get some like-mindedness here. Let's see what the Lord wants for us. We're going to ask him for a fish. He's not going to give us a snake. He's not the author of confusion. All right, let's find some like-mindedness and see. And it may be that <laughs> the husband will thank you for it afterwards and say, hey, you know what, you're right. You know what, you're right. I, I didn't really pray that all the way through. I was kind of jumping to, I saw what I wanted to see, and I didn't really give it to the Lord, see. So David took the time to pray through with his men. They went from not having an understanding to agreeing, see. Now, here in this case, I think it's a clear case of right and wrong. David was right, the men were wrong, and once they adjusted to what David knew to be true, then they were both right and they moved on. But it's not always a case of right and wrong. One of the most difficult, as we close, is the Apostle Paul. So turn over to Acts 21. Because Paul had an understanding of the will of God that he had to go to Jerusalem. Paul had an understanding of the will of God... That rather than going to Rome, that he was going to go to Jerusalem. Now, he ended up in Rome. <laughs> he ended up in Rome because when he got to Jerusalem, they threw him in chains. And then a couple years later, he ended up in Rome. You wonder all the what ifs. He'd have just gone to Rome in the first place. Okay. And so now here's a case. You got different positions. Is one right and the other wrong? What's going on? Are they both right? Does the Father allow for believers to have different understandings? Not to be an author of confusion, but to be a source of testing in terms of a believer's faith? Do you believe that this is true? As this uh, disagreement over understanding is allowed to exist in order to test the believer's faith? In other words, can they both be right according to their faith? See, we already saw in Romans that, that the one who ate can be right, the one who didn't eat can be right. They can both be right in exercising faith. So Paul had an understanding. I think it's interesting when we see here in Acts 21.7, When we had finished the voyage from Tyre, we arrived at Ptolemais, and after greeting the brethren, we stayed with them for a day. On the next day we left and came to Caesarea, and entering the house of Philip the Evangelist, who was one of the seven, the original seven deacons, there along with Stephen and five other guys, um, we stayed with him. Now this man had four virgin daughters who were prophetesses, church-age prophetesses. 
say they've had prophets and prophetesses, apostles, pastor teachers. We've studied spiritual gifts. We'll study spiritual gifts more in the, our first Corinthians series. As we were staying there for some days, a prophet named Agabus came down from Judea. And we see him elsewhere in Acts. In the only place he pops in. And every time we see him, he's serving the Lord and he's right. In terms of the famine in Jerusalem, in terms of a lot of other things. Agabus is a legitimate prophet. not a false prophet. He is a prophet. Named Agabus, came down from Judea. And coming to us, he took Paul's belt and bound his own feet and hands and said, This is what the Holy Spirit says. In this way, the Jews at Jerusalem will bind the man who owns this belt and deliver him into the hands of the Gentiles. When we had heard this, we as well as the local residents, now we, as well as the local residents, began begging him not to go to Jerusalem. Paul, don't go. Paul, don't go. Paul, don't go. Everybody was in agreement. Like-mindedness. Except Paul. (laughs) But Paul answered, What are you doing, weeping and breaking my heart? For I am ready, not only to be bound, and even to die at Jerusalem for the name of the Lord Jesus. Ready to be bound and die at Jerusalem. Even though previously he knew he had to go to Rome. Now he says, I'm ready to die at Jerusalem. And since he would not be persuaded, we fell silent, remarking, the will of the Lord be done. You know, underline that verse. (laughs) Because there comes a point when believers have to stop and say, you know what? We can't keep arguing about this. And we shouldn't argue about this. At some point, we just stop arguing. We stop discussing. You've said what you believe the will of God is. I've said what I believe the will of God is. And so let's just back down, give it to the Lord. Because he knows what the will of God is. He's God. (laughs) Let his will be done. Since he would not be persuaded, we fell silent, remarking, the will of the Lord be done. In my notes, Paul had an understanding of the will of God that was not matched by the understanding of Philip the Evangelist, his four prophetess daughters, the prophet Agabus, the local residents, that would be the local believers, the local church there of Caesarea Bible Church, Uh, and all of Paul's traveling staff. Notice it says we. We heard this. We, as well as the local residents, began begging him not to go up to Jerusalem. Well, who's the we? Well, you find out who the we are back in chapter 20, verse uh, 4. Who's the we? Well, we've got Sopater, Aristarchus, Segundus, Gaius, Timothy, Tychicus, Trophimus, Luke, and probably Titus. I believe Titus was his brother, and I believe Titus was there with his brother Luke to observe these things. But at the very least, Sopater, Aristarchus, Secundus, Gaius, Timothy, Tychicus, Trophimus, Luke. That's undisputable. We're guessing on Titus. Plus the prophet Agabus, plus Philip the Evangelist, plus four prophetess daughters, plus the local citizens, the believers of Caesarea Bible Church. They were like-minded in their understanding of the will of God. Paul had his understanding of the will of God. All right? And I'm going to let this go. There will be further studies on this in the book of Acts and so forth. Mr. Dowd's done some tremendous studies in the book of Acts and things that we have coming up. But stop and consider. What if it's not a... is, Is Paul right and these other 20 people are wrong? Are these guys right and Paul's wrong? Or can it be that the the Holy Spirit has convicted Paul of his understanding and he's going forth on the basis of faith and he's convicted all these other people of their understanding and they're operating on the basis of faith? The issues that come up there. Ultimately, you come to the decision that they came to. Fall silent. The will of the Lord be done. Because it's not our plan anyway. It's his plan. From Alpha to Omega, he's going to bring it about. So we can slow things down and say, all right, Lord, what do you got? Okay. Very important principles. And I think this is what we see in Luke chapter 2. The Lord was ready to leave home. The Lord was ready to relocate from Nazareth to to Jerusalem. Begin his studies under these uh, religious leaders. Joseph and Mary had other plans, another understanding. They, no, he had to go back to Nazareth. He had more growth to attain to there. And ultimately, that's what he submitted to, and that's what he did. We recognize the hand of God in directing all of his past from 
birth all the way up through the cross and beyond. So, in any event, this then becomes an important study for us to understand and really to relate in a family class. How do we operate when we have differences of understanding among family? Very important that we learn these things so that we can apply them and and glorify Jesus Christ in all that we do. Father, I do thank you for the truth of your word. I thank you for your faithfulness. I thank you for this study. And Father, we are a, a local church that is seeking your will in a whole lot of things. We, uh, Father, recognize that, that uh, you've, you've blessed us with an abundance of, uh, of people. And uh, we recognize that uh, the parking lot's packed out. The bathrooms are got long lines every Sunday. The classrooms are, are packed out. The nursery's packed out. And Father... Uh, we recognize that there's uh, something that we should be doing here. And uh, we also recognize, Father, you've got a purpose for it or you wouldn't keep bringing people here. So we know that uh, we need to seek your will and determine what to do if we're going to sell the, sell the property and build someplace else. Or are we going to uh, vacate the parsonage and give that over to a Sunday school building? And, and, uh, and then uh, where's the pastor going to live? So, Father, these are all in your hands. We want to seek your face. We want like-mindedness. We're praying for uh, the pastor and the deacons and all those involved. We're praying for believers that uh, might uh, be considering uh, financially supporting an expansion uh, opportunity. Father, all these things are going to work together for good. They're all going to work together in your perfect plan. And I just thank you that you're giving us the teaching now in order to have victory in these tests and conflicts uh, when, when they come up, Father, there's nothing that tears the church up more than a building program and, and large sums of money get involved and people get their feelings hurt. But, Father, uh, you're equipping us now to handle those tests when we face them, and uh, we thank you for that and pray that, that we will go forth on the basis of faith and pass these tests for the glory of Jesus Christ, and we just give you the praise and thanksgiving in his most precious and holy name. Amen.